It's from Matthew 5:13. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Let's pray. God, thank you for bringing us together here today. Thank you for your word. Um, thank you for ministering to us through music and giving us an opportunity to worship you. Please be with Alan as he brings the message and help our hearts to be open and our minds to understand what you would have us to hear this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Um, we are back now in our uh, sermon series in the Sermon on the Mount. We took a little break over Christmas. And as we get back to this passage in Matthew chapter 5, we're really making a transition today from uh, the Beatitudes, which we looked at one at a time, to now these uh, practical instructions for the Christian life. In fact, I think it's probably helpful for us here to see that as we're moving from the Beatitudes, where we said they were really descriptions of what citizens of Jesus' kingdom are like, right? The, the inevitable character traits of his people, that if you belong to Jesus and his kingdom, you are poor in spirit, right? you will mourn over your sin, and, and that makes you meek in the attitudes with others. It makes you merciful uh, toward them. And so that's what we looked at as we walked through the Beatitudes, but now he's beginning to address, okay, what does this new Christian life actually look like? How should we be living this out? In other words, how do these new kingdom character traits that Jesus has talked about, um, how do they work themselves out in, in our daily living? And, and it's interesting right out of the gate here that Jesus starts with the assumption that citizens of his kingdom do have a relationship. They have an attitude in how they deal with the world around them. I mean, that's what he's talking about. In other words, Christians do not have the luxury of simply withdrawing from the world into our safe, isolated ghettos to protect ourselves from all the evils out there in the world. That's not an option for us. But that we are supposed to be engaged in some sort of relationship with the world around us. And we must say that that engagement is not merely trying to win the culture wars. Our goal is not to triumph over all the evil in our world with politics or by putting people in their place on social media or holding rallies. That's really Jesus' job, to, to actually change the world. Rather, our job is to combine this otherworldly outlook on life that we saw in the Beatitudes with a deep investment in the state of the world around us. As the Apostle Peter put it in 1 Peter chapter 2, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. Why? That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. In other words, you see, what Jesus is saying here is that to be a citizen of his kingdom means that we are poor in spirit and we do mourn over our sin and we're meek and we're merciful uh, and we long for righteousness, but we do all that in order that we might be the salt of the earth, in order that we might have some kind of influence upon the world. And you see, this, Jesus says, is our function. This is our purpose in the world. This describes how we're supposed to relate to the world around us. Now listen, every single one of you is very aware of just how 
radically our culture has fallen away from the traditional values that we've grown up with, uh, especially if you're my age, you've seen a lot of change. And in today's world, uh, Christian values are not only not valued, um, but just talking about them, in fact, even thinking about them in some cases, can get you persecuted. You can be erased. You can even be, in some cases, legally discriminated against for what you believe or think. And so the question for the Christian community, frankly, it's a question the conservative community in general has been wrestling with, is how do we respond to all this? What are we supposed to do about it? Do we fight back? Do we become political and try to win the culture wars? Do we fight and try to take this country back for Jesus? Is it our job to take a stance on every social and moral issue and speak against all the cultural decline around us? Or do we retreat into our safe, private Christian circles where the world and its evils can't taint us? See, that's what this passage is dealing with this morning. So it's very relevant. It's what's going on in our world right now. And Jesus says that our response as his people is to be the salt of the earth. Now, before we get into looking at just what that means, I want to start by asking, what does this tell us about how Jesus views the state of our world? You know, 100 years ago, which sounds like a long time ago, but when you're 60, it's only like 40 years older than you, so it's not that long ago. Um, The world was really caught up in the uh, optimism and the hope and the progress uh, of evolution. And and not even so much biological evolution, we can lay that aside for a minute, though that certainly was true, but the logical assumptions that that they took from the rise of biological evolution. It's what we could probably call philosophical evolution. That it's the idea that all of life is advancing under the progress of science. And the more that we can understand the nature of things through science and discovery, we're eventually going to be able to abolish all wars since reason and civility will replace tribalism and strife. All poverty is going to be done away with as education lifts everybody out of the gutter. All suffering and disease will be eradicated as science discovers cures for everything. And of course, right on the heels of that thought, the world had two worldwide wars that rocked the 20th century and absolutely demolished those ideals and those dreams. But you see, I want you to understand that those same ideas are being revived once again, as they always are in every generation. They just seem to keep coming back over and over again. Uh, This time by the likes of uh, Klaus Schwab and Bill Gates and other global elites who are trying to bring about uh, a renewed utopia through controlling the education systems and controlling the media and, and controlling the monetary systems Uh, through causes like saving the planet or trying to create a one-world currency. But I want you to see that this is just another in a long series of human uh, inventions to try and save mankind from its own destruction. Much like the Renaissance tried to do, much like the uh, Enlightenment tried to bring about, much like the Industrial Revolution thought it could produce, or later on the hippie movements of the 60s of love and peace, that was gonna change the world, or even the modern social movements of transgenderism and sexual identity. These are all human alternatives to try and find some way that we can save ourselves, that we can rescue ourselves from the troubles of the world. 
And when you see, Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. He's implying that the world is rotten. He's implying that the world is falling apart, that it's an absolute and utter decay, that the world has this inevitable trajectory toward evil, toward wars and people taking advantage of other people, a deep obsession with me and what I want to do, and that really left to itself, the world will self-implode on its own ideas of self-preservation because everything the world comes up with is based on me in the self. See, every philosophy of cultural salvation ends up finding ways of promoting me and my agenda and my comfort and my power and my people. In fact, we, we really even do this within the church. We've managed to invent a Christian version of this where all the emphasis is on your external behavior. And we try all these various methods to try and coerce from the outside in some form of better behavior. If we can just use enough guilt and, and, and shame and, and duty, if we can uh, pile on the social pressure of your testimony and everyone's watching you, if we can coerce from the outside in, see, it's all about me. It's all about self-salvation. And, and you see, Jesus here is warning us to be on guard, to be careful not to get caught up in the self-salvation attempts of whether it's Me Too or Black Lives Matter or critical race theory or transgenderism or even the legalism of the evangelical church, right? We cannot get our lives together by our own efforts. Self-discipline and guilt and shame, whatever it takes, it, it simply is not enough. Listen, Jesus is telling us here that the core of this world is rotten and that no movement of civility or enlightenment or progress is going to fix the things that are wrong with this world. They need the salt of Christians. And he's, I think, implying here that it's only the salt of Christians that can preserve this world from its own destruction. And you see, at least what this means to this point is that we shouldn't be surprised by any of the things that we see happening in the world around us. In fact, the only real surprise is that the world isn't any worse off than it actually is. I mean, you can see this illustrated all throughout the Bible. Just take one book, the book of Genesis, right? God creates a perfect world, and the introduction of sin creates this downward spiral that eventually leads God to destroy the world with a flood, and let's do a do-over. Let's start all over again. But it wasn't long after that restart that we get to the stories of Sodom and Gomorrah and the incredible corruption of the world, and we have this continued downward spiral with wars and, and abuse and injustice and rape and theft and murder. And, and you see, the point is, that's always going to be the case. That's just the nature of our fallen world. And so I think that's what Jesus is implying to us here about the nature of the world in which we live when he tells us to be the salt of the earth. He's telling us it's rotten. It's, it's broken. It's in a downward spiral. And that none of our attempts to save it are ever going to be able to work. It's going to take more than our meager attempts at self-reformation. The world needs the salt of Christians. Now, we would never invent that. So glad Jesus said that because um, sometimes I think we do a pretty lousy job of that. So then what does it mean then? Uh, what does it tell us about our role as Christians uh, in this world? What does, it, what does it mean to be salty? Right, if it's going to have that kind of effect on the world around us. Um, if the various... Um, strategies of self-reformation are not going to be able to make things better. What will? 
How will the world survive? And Jesus tells us here that you and you alone are the salt of the earth. Now, what does that mean? Well, obviously, it can mean a number of things, and we'll look at a few. Um, I think, first of all, it means in a general sense that, that we are utterly different from the world. Um, I, I mean, remember, this statement here comes right on the heels of the radical character change of the Beatitudes, being merciful instead of harsh, being meek instead of proud and defensive. And, and so clearly our lives and our attitudes are going to be very different from the world around us. And you see, much like salt, it's always radically different, radically unlike whatever it is that it flavors, right? I mean, it's distinct. It's, it's, it's unique. I mean, you can't just taste something and, and, I mean, you can just taste something and say, you know, what it, what it needs is just a pinch of salt, right? It'll bring out the flavor. Uh, and without this unique ability uh, to bring out the flavor of everything that it touches, there's really not much point to adding salt to anything. It, it doesn't have a lot of nutritional value. I suppose our bodies need sodium, but we get more than, uh, than enough of that. But, but the smallest amount of it makes the greatest impact on anything that it touches. And you see, the Beatitudes have made it perfectly clear that the, the salt of Christians is not merely being another flavor among the many flavors of this world, but it's the one flavor, the one thing that tempers and affects and enhances everything that it touches. So don't listen to the world that tells you that it's okay to have your own values and your own ideas. Just keep it to yourself. You are the savor that brings life and taste to everything that you touch. You simply cannot relegate your faith to your own private corner. That's the whole point of salt. I mean, who wants to eat a pile of salt all by yourself in the corner? It's pointless on its own. So that's the first thing. It is radically unique. But secondly, I think because of this, there, there, there's a sense in which we should really glory in that difference. Our, our lives are called to be different and really as different to the world as Jesus' life was. You know, I, I think because we're cowards probably, it's so easy for us to believe the lie that our job is to blend in with the world around us. To, you know, just don't rock the boat too much and be noticed uh, just keep your head down, live your own private faith as, as best you can. But, but coming out of the Beatitudes, Jesus has made it clear that what makes citizens of his kingdom so different is that they've completely lost all obsession with self. See, everything in this world is based on me. My happiness, my comfort, my security, my joy. And along comes Jesus who says, let me live the perfect life that you owe to God in your place. And let me pay the debt that you owe to God in your place. And what that does is it frees us up from needing to justify ourselves. It frees us up from the competitiveness of needing to win at the expense of somebody else. And now we can be meek and, and humble as we deal patiently with fellow sinners. Now we can seek after true righteousness instead of trying to create my own through my own efforts. And as a result, there's a radical difference in us. Because we're off the merry-go-round that everybody else is on trying to prove and justify themselves. We're not playing those games of self-preservation that everybody else is playing. We have our security in Jesus. And so we can move out into the world and be the salt of loving service and self-sacrifice that those around us desperately need. 
But thirdly, let's move on to see that, you know, obviously the primary use of salt in Jesus' day was that of preservation. Uh, and this is kind of a, a, a negative function. It's a role that helps to keep the rot and the germs and the impurities of meat from self-destructing, from falling apart into decay, from falling into its natural state. And therefore, this role of salt is a negative one. See, our, our primary role in this world is to slow down the inevitable process of decay that the world is unraveling toward. Our role is not to stop it. It's not to win and conquer the world in Jesus' name, but it's to stem the tide of decay as it inevitably marches toward its own self-destruction. In fact, in many ways, it's actually worse than that because our, our role is to slow the decay of the rot of this world, a rot that the world sees as progress and enlightenment. And so there's not a whole lot of appreciation for the preserving effect that Christians have upon this world. I mean, much like Jesus, who was sacrificing himself to save the world, his every word was only seen as an indictment that made people want to kill him. And sadly, that's our role as well. I mean, think of it this way, practical example. It's like being a responsible adult and intervening in a five-year-old kid who would just eat all the candy they could possibly find until they got sick. Right? If, if you didn't step in and say, no, enough, stop it, right? you're going to be a killjoy, but you're saving them. Or, or maybe it's like dealing with teenagers who are convinced that partying with sex and drugs and alcohol are going to bring life and joy and fulfillment when you know all too well that it's going to bring about foolish choices and a miserable hangover and an eventual death if they keep up that kind of lifestyle. And see, you're, again, you're going to be viewed as a killjoy and a prude. And what's wrong with you when all you're really doing is preserving them from the self-destruction that they would chase after if you didn't intervene? And that's what our role in society is, Jesus says. Now, having said that, let me just give you a caution because I think there are some people who relish taking on this role a bit too much. And they do so with a sense of superiority, uh, of judgmentalism, of being better than the world around them, and they love condemning people for all the evils that they do. But notice here, Jesus says, we are not to preserve the world by judging them with our superior morality and wiser choices, but we preserve them by finding our own identity in Christ, by finding our own rest and our own joy in his life given to us. See, by being so secure and so loved by Jesus that we can now be merciful to others, right? To, we can be merciful to people who are hell-bent on self-destruction. We can be merciful to people who despise us for trying to intervene and help them. See, we can be meek and gentle with them as we urge them to stop their self-destructive ways. And we're patient with them along the way because we get it. We remember what it's like to try and find life from the things of this world. But now we have life. We have security, we have joy, and so we can step off that merry-go-round and we can enter into the lives of people around us. Now, fourthly, salt obviously does provide flavor to everything that it touches. It's probably our favorite aspect of salt today. Salt is what keeps food from tasting bland and boring. Uh, and, and you see, what the world defines as fun, as a party that leads you to do all sorts of stupid things and make all sorts of foolish choices, and makes you miserable the next day and eventually kills your body if you stay on that track. See, the Christian is the only one who truly knows how to party in this life. 
as we celebrate all the good things of this life while being sober enough to actually enjoy them. See, the Christian is the one who recognizes that the real joy in life is not found by dulling the senses and covering over our misery, but it's found in relationships, in, in people, in investing in making their lives and our community a better place. See, just look at the life of a partying kid. There's death and destruction in their wake. A life of partying never ends up good. Or look at the power-hungry desperation of politicians. There's only death and destruction on their wake, usually more ours than theirs. Or look at a person at work who uh, is desperate to get ahead and climb the, the ladder there. There's only death and destruction in their wake. But you see, a Christian brings life wherever they go. They bring hope and they bring joy as we celebrate the gift that has rescued us, as we celebrate the forgiveness and the acceptance that we already have, the perfect acceptance, where the creator of the universe finds us beautiful, he finds us worthy and valuable, that we were worth dying for, that we were worth rescuing. And as a result, we then winsomely invite others around us into the same dance that we've been invited into. And you see, we can do this because we're off the merry-go-round of self-preservation. We're now free to invest in the betterment of everybody around us. See, the world parties and strives to get ahead in a desperate attempt to cover their deep fears that, I'm not enough, that I'm a failure, that I'm a loser. But the Christian parties because we know we're loved and nothing can ever separate us from the love of God. Now, I want us to end by asking a very practical question. How do they do that? No, I, I won't take the commercial. How, how, do, we do, how do we live as people of, of salt? How do we pull this off uh, in, in a world that's not only focused on all the wrong things, but despises us with every attempt to try and rescue them. And notice it's not by standing on the street corners condemning sinners to hell. It is not by taking over the world and winning the culture wars. In fact, it's not even the church taking a corporate stance against all the evils of the world, but it comes simply by Christians being the renewed people that we are. It comes from being like Jesus. It comes from all these descriptions of us that we saw on the Beatitudes that are true and that they grow in us. In fact, let me just say something that, at least in the modern day church, is going to be seen as controversial. I think I'm safe enough distant. No one can throw things at me. But see, this passage is not a call for the corporate church to take a public stance on homosexuality and transgenderism and abortion we don't need denominations gathering for their annual meetings to either denounce or approve of Black Lives Matter or critical race theory or transgender ideology. You see, if that's how the church spends her time, then the homosexual and the transgender person will never come to hear the good news that can rescue them, ever. If the church bashes certain segments of our society, then that segment will never come to us for healing and hope. I mean, of course these evils are wrong, but the people who are held captive to these alternatives of finding life are never going to be able to respond to any call to stop it. They're not capable of stopping it. They need a viable alternative. Because you see, the role of the church is to equip saints to be salt and to preach the good news of the gospel. It's not to engage in political or social evils, 
Because the church is supposed to be concerned about the salvation of every manifestation of evil out there, not to condemn it. We're not making pronouncements against this or that. If we are going to bring rescue to a dying world, we don't need a stronger church with bigger buildings and more programs and more money. We need stronger Christian people who are willing to invest themselves in the rot and the decay that's going on around them. And listen, you can see this worked out in the history of, of, our, of our world. After every great revival, after every great awakening, the whole society reached uh, reaped tremendous benefits, right? Slavery was abolished, not by churches taking a stance, but by individuals investing themselves personally into the fray. Not only was slavery abolished, hospitals and nursing homes were established instead of leaving the sick to die, which is what the pagans were known for. Public ed education was created. Child labor was eliminated in much of the world. The, the poor were given a dignity and opportunities to work. Vast plagues that swept across the world were stopped, and they didn't need Sir Anthony Fauci, right? They simply needed Christians who were willing to roll up their sleeves and risk their own death in order to save the needs of those around them. Listen, this is really the heart of what we want City Church to become. Not a place that condemns all the evils out there. Of course it's evil. Condemning is not going to help anybody. But we want to be a place that invests in their healing and redemption. And we want to be a church that is proactive in addressing the needs of our city. The, the, the greatest needs around us of multi-generational poverty. The, the need to teach practical trades to young people who are never going to go off to college. The opportunity to provide hope uh, as an alternative to people numbing themselves with drugs. We want to teach our kids that they're capable of more than living off the draw like their parents and their grandparents did. See, we want to become a church that equips you to be salt, to invest yourself in the brokenness of these cities and to bring hope and opportunity, not just physically, but ultimately spiritually, so that people can find rest and security in knowing that they're loved, that they're beautiful, that they don't have to strive anymore. See, what I'm, what I'm trying to convey to you here is that if you want to see the evils of society changed, invest yourself personally. Serve needy people. Offer healing and hope to the distressed. Give people viable alternatives to the hopelessness that they see. And don't waste your time trying to bash evil or judge broken uh, uh, attitudes or even to win this nation back for Jesus by instituting laws that force people to act better. I mean, I mean, think about it. In Jesus' day, Israel had every law that you could possibly imagine that would promote justice and equity. They had every law you could imagine that would curb injustice and abuse, and yet it didn't work. Jesus, into that context, said, guys, you need something more than this. What you need are to be transformed people of my kingdom who are so confident in my love and my acceptance of you that you can willingly let go of self-striving and serve the needs of those around you and invest yourself in bringing them hope and healing. And of course, you know, if you're like me, your first excuse is always, but you know, the, the needs are so great and there's really not much I can do. I'm not that gifted. I'm not that talented. I don't have that much money. And I love that Jesus says, remember guys, you're salt. How much salt does it take to flavor an entire meal? It just takes a pinch. Just a pinch. That's all it takes, right? Because a little salt permeates the entire object that it flavors. And if Bristol is to become a renewed place of life 
and joy and hope and opportunity. It's not laws and pronouncements that are going to change things. It's not even the right politicians who are going to fix it. Jesus tells us that you and you only are the salt of the earth, which means that you're the only ones who can stem the tide of decay going on around us as you individually invest yourself in the renewal of our Bristol's. And you can't do much, but you don't need to do much. A little salt goes a long way. May God give us a grace to be the salt for our community that he's called us to be. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that um, when you saw our brokenness, you didn't just throw rules at us. You didn't throw a book at us and tell us to get our act together. But you came down and invested yourself personally into our hearts and our lives. You became one of us. And you lived perfectly in our place. And you died that perfect sacrifice in our place. And I pray that we would take on that same heart attitude. That having been rescued by such tremendous love. That we would be freed up to pursue rescuing those around us. That we would take a similar kind of investment uh, that costs dearly. uh, But that gains much. And I pray that you would give us hearts to be selfless to be able to find our identity in you so that we are able to do this with joy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.